Happy Father's Day once again to all the dads in the house. Um, Man, I I thank God for you. I thank God for uh, the role that you play in your families, but also the role that you play in the family of God. And uh, I just want to encourage you today, keep going, okay? Don't give up. I know for some of you men, you feel like you you carry a lot, and it's likely that you do, Uh, but thank God you don't carry it alone, amen? Get connected with other men in the church. They'll encourage you. Um, Stay connected with the Lord. He's got everything you need, amen? Well, today is a a good day. I know it's a good day for some of the dads because uh, you get to relax a little bit. It was funny. Before first service, I was asking some of the dads, okay, what are you doing today? And they're like, I'm doing nothing. And they said it with such a smile. Like the moms on Mother's Day want to go out and do stuff. And dads were like, we just want to do nothing. Like that sounds great. So I hope you get a chance uh, to do nothing this afternoon. Um, But it's also a good day uh, because we're coming to a turning point in our text. If you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, if you got it on your lap, if you got it on your phone, um, if you've been with us on this journey, you know that up until this point, uh, there's been a lot of bad news in the book of Romans. Starting in in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul described the wrath of God, and he talks about how God's righteous judgment is on every one of us. I mean, Paul has really let us have it, right? He's called us every name in the book, and then he backed it up by Scripture. Uh, He's told us that, that God must be just in dealing with our sin. He's made it clear that the wrath of God is what you and I deserve. Now, if you have somehow made it through these last four sermons in Romans thinking that this does not apply to you, okay, the only way you can really do that is by denying the Word of God and setting yourself up as a judge over God, okay? The only way you can come out of those four weeks feeling like you're scot-free is if you allow pride to rise up in your heart. And hear me, while the world around us would love to use the month of June to celebrate pride, we know that it's one of the most deadly sins. It's out of the sin of pride that many other sins flow. And so, yes, we've heard a lot of bad news from Paul in the beginning of Romans, but remember, unless you understand the diagnosis, you can't appreciate the cure. Unless you understand your desperate need, you won't see how tremendous God's grace really is. And so, last week we saw this summary in the beginning of chapter 3 that speaks of the guilt of all mankind. We talked about the doctrine of total depravity, right? How no one is good, no one is righteous, no one seeks God. And there seems to to be this lingering bad news, but know this today, that bad news is not bad news for those of us who get what's coming next. In in fact, if we get what's coming next, and all we've really read about and focused on over these past weeks, it it, it merely uh, makes the good news that much better, amen? The, The bad news becomes a dark backdrop that makes the gospel, the good news, shine even more brightly. And so here in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we have this glorious transition. It's one of the the most glorious transitions in all of Scripture. Because verse 20 speaks of judgment, but verse 21 is going to speak about God's righteousness. Would you stand with me today one more time? We're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, We do this uh, to honor God's Word. And I, I want you to hear this morning this glorious passage in its entirety. Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 21, but now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word today. We thank you that it is living and it's active. And so, Lord, as we approach your word, we do so reverently. We also do so expectantly, believing that you desire to speak to us. And so I pray in this moment, Lord God, that you would hide me behind the cross. I pray. Lord, that you would speak through your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would challenge us today. We don't want to leave here the same way we came through these doors. And so we pray you would do something in just these few moments, Lord God, to change us and to mark us and to continue to shape us to be the people you desire us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated today. Hopefully you uh, got a note sheet on your way in and I encourage you, if you got one of those, pull it out. Um, I, I've given you in your note sheet today this entire passage of Scripture, and I want to encourage you to grab a pen, grab a pencil, because we're going to underline a few things, we're going to circle a few things, maybe you've got a highlighter, you're fancy, you can highlight some things, okay? Um, you can do that on the note sheet, or if you have your Bible, I encourage you, you can do that on the Bible in front of you. You know you can write in your Bible, it's okay, right? <laughs> circle some things, highlight some things, uh, it, it's a great way to understand what God is speaking. And so right at the start, I want you to circle these two words in your Bible or on the note sheet, circle the words, but now, but now. Whether you're reading in the King James or the NIV or the ESV, NLT, it's the same two words, but now. And those two words, they, they mark a glorious transition in our text. Those two words speak to the newness of God's work in Jesus Christ. It is, as we understand it, it is a new covenant. It's a, it's a new promise. Paul's going to tell us that salvation has always been by faith and not by meeting the demands of the law. Because if it's true that no one has ever kept the demands of the law and there's no one that is righteous through the law, then how can we ever have the righteousness that is required to live in God's presence? Well, the good news is today there is another way. The good news is there is a path to righteousness apart from the law. It's apart from our own earning and somehow deserving. It's apart from our own merits. Because sometimes when we think about our, our Christianity or we think about our own righteousness, we think about it like that little sticker chart in preschool. How many of you remember that, right? A little sticker chart. Or maybe some of you did this as parents, right? You put the sticker chart up. The kids do their chores. They get a star. They get a smiley face, right? And enough stars, they go out for ice cream, right? Whatever the reward is, right? But, but sometimes we, we think of our, our Christian lives like that, right? Like, I came to church, God, there's another star on my chart, right? I gave in the offering, there's another star. You see how much I gave? Maybe I get two stars, right? But hear me, when we talk about righteousness being apart from the law, again, it's apart from our own earning and therefore deserving. 
Really, you could say it's apart from the principle of the law. See, the principle of the law says you do this and you deserve that. We're going to talk today instead about the principle of faith, right? But it's important that you understand this. God's righteousness is not offered to us as, as something to, to kind of take up the slack, right? Like, like we're pretty good, but we fall just a little bit short, and so the cross makes up the difference, right? The, the cross kind of covers that gap. No, absolutely not. When we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, it is not a supplement to our own righteousness, because here's the reality. You and I don't need a righteousness supplement. What we need is a replacement. And so this righteousness that he's going to talk about is something given completely apart from your own attempts to be righteous. At the same time, he says this, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, this was predicted a long time ago. The Old Testament said that this righteousness was coming. In just the next, next chapter, Paul is going to use the example of Abraham to demonstrate that righteousness has always been received by faith. He's going to use the example of David when he had sinned with Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband to try to cover up the sin, right? After that sin, David writes in the Psalms, he says, I was so miserable, it felt like my bones were drying up. In other words, he lived with great conviction over that sin, but when he confessed his sins, according to Psalm 32, 5, God forgave his sins. And it's amazing because in Psalm 51, David says that it's not a sacrifice that God wanted. He wouldn't be pleased with a burnt offering. Now, you can read that and say, well, hold on. Like, isn't that what the law requires, right? A burnt offering, a guilt offering, a sacrifice. But understand, David had this understanding that it was a broken and a contrite heart that God desired. And that's really the great news of the new covenant. It's this, that if we look to God for his forgiveness and we repent and we turn to him, right, then the blood of Jesus covers our sin. And so both David and Abraham looked to God by faith and they trusted him to provide the perfect sacrifice. They obeyed by faith and therefore were counted righteous. Now, that same righteousness is also seen in many of the prophecies of the, of the coming Messiah. While Moses delivered the people of God from Egypt, he predicted that a greater one would deliver them from the Egypt of their hearts. Because it's one thing to get the people of God out of Egypt, it's another thing to get Egypt out of the hearts of the people of God. But look at Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses says this, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. The prophet Isaiah predicted this suffering servant that was to come would, would bear our iniquities, and it's by his stripes that we're healed. According to Isaiah 53, 11, he is the one who will justify many. Listen to these verses. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so again, Paul is saying that this righteousness is apart from the law, and yet it's witnessed to by the law and by the prophets. Now back to Romans 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now I want you to circle two more words there, those words through faith, through faith. Notice the righteousness of God is not ours by faith, it is through faith. 
We receive righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's an important distinction to make because it points to the fact that faith is not something that earns us salvation, okay? If, if we use the word by, we can think, well, it's by my faith, right? I've earned my salvation, right? But instead, we need to understand that faith is no more than the means through which a gift is given to us. Faith is no more than the means by which a gift is given to us. And this faith is not expecting God to do something, but instead relying on the testimony concerning the person of Jesus Christ, trusting the work that he's already done for us on the cross. You see, after we express saving faith in our lives, it's at that point that the life of trust really begins. And while trust is looking ahead to what God will do, faith sees what God has already done. Faith looks at what God has done through the work of Jesus on the cross, and it says, yes, absolutely, that's true. I can base my life on that, amen? Now, notice Paul tells us how this righteousness does not come. It doesn't come through the deeds of the law. Again, it is apart from the law. Somebody's not happy about that. And then he says this, for there is no distinction, right? You see, there are many in our world today who would tell you there's many paths to God. Like you have your path and, and I have mine and we just kind of all find our way, right? You have your faith, I have mine. There's, there's a bunch of different roads and we, we all just got to kind of figure out what works for us, right? Figure out which one is right for you. But the gospel says that there is one universal cure for the problem of sin. It tells us that it's the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that will save every man and save every woman who trusts in him. Why? Because there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that's a universal statement that tells us this, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Again, we are all sinners and there's not a single soul that has lived up to this point that has lived perfectly, right? Other than Jesus, right? And there's not a single one of us that has lived up to the perfection that God requires. We all stand in need of his righteousness that comes through faith. John Stott in his book, The Message of Romans, he quotes a bishop by the name of Hanley Mole, who says this. He says, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are all short of it, meaning the righteousness of God, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine, and you on the crest of the Alps, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. In other words, you may be more righteous. You may think you're further along, but you still fall short. So there's this universal problem, right? Again, we all fall short. But that universal problem, understand, it is uh, uh, responded to, it's answered by a universal offer. He says this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So universal problem and then a universal offer, right? The gospel is open to everyone who will believe. Because we're in such a sinful state that, that the only way that we can be justified is to be justified freely. Because there is no way we could purchase justification by our works. If it wasn't free, we couldn't have it, right? Just like that Corvette you're looking at. Until it's free, you're not going to have it, right? And so we're justified by God's grace. We're, we're justified by his unmerited favor. That favor is given to us, though, because it's not what we deserve. Again, look at how we're justified. ESV says this, as a gift. Write that in, as a gift. NIV says we're justified freely. Underline, highlight those words in your Bible, right? Because both ideas come from this ancient Greek word. The word is Dorian. 
And if we look at its use in other New Testament passages, it helps us to understand what this word really means. Matthew 10, 8, Jesus sends out the 12 and he says this, freely you have received, now freely give. It's that same word, Dorian. Revelation twenty two seventeen. let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. And so the word truly means free. Understand, when we talk about justification, when we talk about salvation, it is a gift. It's not cheap. It's not deeply discounted. You just got to pay a little bit less. It, it's a gift. It's truly free because there's nothing in us that deserves justification. Paul's going to develop his teaching about salvation around three themes, three words that we don't use in our everyday vocabulary. These are Christianese, if you will. These are words we sometimes only say in the church, right? The words are justification, redemption, and propitiation. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. I think it's important we understand what these words mean because we're going to hear them again. But starting with justification, you write something, you can write something down, there's a, a space there, whatever stands out to you, but think about justification like this. Uh, the, one of the easiest ways to remember justification is, is the expression, just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned. It's an image from the court of law. It means that our, our record is clean. When we talk about justification, it deals with our, di- our guilt before a, a, a righteous God. And then there's the word redemption, right? To to redeem, it means to exchange one thing for another. I remember as a kid, we would collect the aluminum cans on the back porch, right? And sometimes I would talk my dad into letting me change them back in because then I get to keep the money, right? Maybe, how many of you still do that today? Keep the cans? Not many of us, we put them right in recycling. But, But if you do take that can back to the store, they'll give you five cents back for it. If you take that can to Michigan, they'll give you 10 cents. I'm trying to figure out how to make that work, right? As Paul writes this idea, though, of redemption, it was an image from the slave market where slaves could be redeemed by paying what they were valued for. And so if you read there, beginning in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and their their guilt before God is is dealt, dealt with by his grace as a free gift through the exchange that is in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation is a a little bit harder word to describe. But it's an image from the the world of religion. It speaks of appeasing God through sacrifice. To the Jew, it meant the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled to make man acceptable to God. To the Greeks, it, it meant a sacrifice that appeased the anger of the gods. And so this word had strong meaning for the Jews, but it was also understood by the Greeks. But let me explain it in a way we can understand today. When we see that the law that God gave to Moses could never make us as good as we need to be, because again, the standard is perfection, right? And we know we're too evil for that. And yet God shows us kindness by declaring us to be as good as he is. He does this through Jesus, by freeing us from the penalty that our sins deserve. How does he do that? He takes the penalty himself. And so Jesus' blood is the sacrifice that satisfies God's sense of justice, right? You could say it this way. Justification solves the problem of our guilt before a righteous God. Redemption solves the problem of our slavery to sin. And propitiation solves the problem of offending a righteous God. We'll leave that up there for a moment so you can write that down. 
When you think about this word propitiation, though, when NASA began to think about sending astronauts into space, they were very aware that there was going to be an issue when those astronauts tried to come back, right? Uh, And so they needed to put a heat shield on the underside of the spacecraft in order to protect the astronauts from the tremendous heat that would be generated upon their reentry into Earth's atmosphere. I'm sure we're familiar with the Apollo moon missions, more recently the space shuttle missions, right? On the bottom of the space shuttle, you will see this heat shield. And during re-entry, it's so important that the capsule or the shuttle is positioned at just the right angle, coming in at just the right angle for that heat shield to do its job and to take the heat and therefore keep the astronauts inside safe. Now, one of the terms that NASA has been known to use when speaking of this heat shield is the propitiatory shield, the propitiatory shield. And I think that's a perfect picture of what Christ did for us. He is our propitiation. In other words, he took the heat for us. You see, the Bible says this, that our God is a consuming fire. That's New Testament, by the way, in Hebrews, okay? And God says, I am the Lord. I, I, cannot, I do not change, right? I change not. And understand this today. God is still a God of holiness. He's still a God of, of consuming fire. But thanks be to God, Jesus is our heat shield. He is our propitiation. He took the wrath of God that should have been directed at us. Isaiah 12, 1 says, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and instead you comfort me. Though you're angry at me, your anger is turned away, and instead you comfort me. God was angry with us, but now his anger is turned away because it was redirected to Jesus Christ when he died on the cross of Calvary. He took the wrath of God. Remember we talked about it? He, he, took, he drank the cup of the wrath of God. And this is good news, but hear me, just like the astronauts have to be inside the shuttle when they enter the Earth's atmosphere, we have to be found in Christ. See if the men in the shuttle said, you know, we're going to try this a different way, and they're going to open the hatch, and we're just going to skydive to Earth. They're not going to last very long, right? They, they would be burned up upon reentry. They would be consumed in the same way. We cannot make our own arrangements to get to heaven. The Word of God says there's only one name by which we can be saved. That is the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that the only way that we will ever be able to approach the almighty God and be found acceptable in his sight is for us to be safely in Christ, his beloved son. Ephesians chapter one tells us that it is Christ who makes us acceptable to God. Again, his anger is turned away from us when we come to faith in Christ because Christ took the heat of God's wrath. That is propitiation. And I want you to think as you read scripture of that propitiatory shield. Now, this passage is also where we get a doctrine, which is a very important doctrine in the Christian faith known as penal substitutionary atonement. Big term, right? Penal substitutionary atonement. If you break it up, you understand what it means. A penal, we talk about penal code, right? Laws concerning crimes and offenses, legal punishments. In other words, there is a penalty to be paid. The wages of sin is death, Right? There's a penalty to be paid, substitutionary. It means that there is one who receives the penalty on behalf of another, and atonement is the process by which you and I are made right with God. When you hear that word atonement, you can think of at one minute, right? Being made right with God. And so penal substitutionary atonement, understand, is an essential doctrine of the church, that Jesus pays the penalty for our sin in our place so that you and I could be made right with God. 
Listen, there's a lot of things that we can disagree with between denominations and churches and still get along, but this is essential, okay? This is one we need to hold on to. Because when understood rightly, Christ's work on the cross, that atonement, it it protects us from our tendency to replace Christianity with morality. And sadly, there are a lot of churches today that no longer preach the cross, they only preach morality. But there's no salvation in morality, right? It, It protects us from replacing God's grace with legalism apart from Christ's atoning work. Continuing there in verse 25, he says this, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Remember, when we talk about forbearance, it deals with past sins. Understand, everyone who lived before Jesus' coming could have been judged by the law. But God held off and he overlooked their sins until Jesus paid the penalty for them. You see, they were looking forward to God providing in some way, and he did just that through Jesus on the cross. And yet, until he did that, there was no reason for God to keep from judging mankind by their sins, but of course God knew that he would provide a means through his son, Jesus Christ. And so his divine forbearance shows how perfectly good he is. It shows that he covers the past. And then in just the next verse, Paul addresses the present and the future. Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness when at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, this provision of God shows how good that he he is. Yes, he's covered over past sins, but it shows how good he is right now. It shows how good he is every day. Every day that you fall short, he's faithful. Amen? He's faithful. Even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Every day he's willing uh, to make the sinner righteous in the eyes of God if they will simply place their faith in what Jesus did. And so we understand, yes, God is a God who demands justice, but he also provides that justice at his own expense. He he even gives us the faith to receive it as a gift. I mean, think about it. In one sense, it's easy to see how someone could be just. And if we're only talking about justice and the justice of God, God would be just in condemning every one of us, right? Because again, we've all fallen short. He would be a just judge to condemn every one of us. Or he could be a justifier. And he could just say, you know what, forget about it, and just justify our sin, right? Sometimes we do that for ourselves. We justify our actions, right? And so God could simply tell every sinner, you know what, you're pardoned, you're not guilty, don't worry about it. But understand, then he would not be just. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, was able to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, right? Here's the thing, sometimes we look for one and we don't look for the other, right? We try to justify ourselves and we overlook sin, right? Or on the other side, if we say God's just and he's dealing with our sin, how are we gonna be made righteous? But look at verse 27. What then becomes of our boasting? If God is both just and the justifier, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. He asked the question, what becomes of our boasting? Or where is our boasting? Because of what Christ has done, hear me today, boasting should not exist in the life of a believer. 
Like it shouldn't be anywhere in our lives because we are justified freely by his grace. There's absolutely no uh, room for us to congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and give ourselves credit, right? If righteousness is truly ours through faith in what was done for us, then how can we take the credit and how can we boast? The question there is by what kind of law? Hear me, boasting is not excluded because there's some passage in the law that says don't boast. <laughs> Instead, he's saying that boasting is, in, is excluded because it's incompatible with salvation that is a free gift through faith. It's incompatible with salvation as a free gift. Boasting is excluded by the law of faith. Now, what does that mean for you and, my, you and I? It means that when we live by the law of faith, there's no room for boasting in our lives. Because the law of faith says we're saved through faith and not through our works, right? And so sadly, this is the reason that some people push back on this idea of being justified by faith alone, by God's grace, right? Because if I'm justified by faith as a gift, then there's no room for me to receive any merit, right? Because God's grace will absolutely refuse to recognize any merit in your life. The free gift of God leaves no place in your life for, fr- for pride. Remember, Paul was a, was a Pharisee, and so he's speaking from experience, right? Because he's now received the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. At, at one point, he boasted about how obedient he was to the law, but he stopped doing that. And now he only boasts in what Jesus has done for him. Galatians six fourteen, Paul writes these words. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying the only thing that I can boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You see Paul's logic here? If we're justified by the law, like if that's the only way we're going to be justified, then the only ones who might possibly have a chance are the Orthodox Jews, because they do the best job of keeping the law, right? If that were the case, then God would be the God of the Jews only. However, Scripture tells us again and again that God is the God of all mankind, the Jew and the Gentile, right? If, and if that's the case, what's the way to salvation? How is it possible for both Jew and Gentile to be saved? It is by faith alone. It's faith for those who are circumcised. It's faith for those who are uncircumcised. It's the same way, one way for all mankind. Think about that. The faith that saved Abraham and David is the same kind of faith that saves you and I today. When we come to that place where we recognize that we're sinners and we know we'll never be good enough for God on our own. We could never make ourselves righteous, but yet we see God's mercy and we see his grace. Then we throw ourselves upon his mercy. Jesus made the way for God to be just in forgiving all who would come to him by faith because Jesus took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve. First Peter 2.24, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
It's quoting the prophet Isaiah, right? When he said, it's, it's by his stripes that we are healed. You know, so often we'll, we'll grab those verses and we'll, we'll pray those verses when we're praying for a physical healing, right? And hear me, I, I believe today that Jesus is the great physician. I believe that he can heal our infirmities. I believe he can deal with sickness in our life. But the healing that you and I need the most is not a physical healing. It's a spiritual healing. Because we've fallen short, we need to be reconciled to God. And the good news of the gospel tells us that by his wounds, you have been healed. We're justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It isn't that we're justified by faith plus the deeds of the law, like you do what you can and God's going to make up the difference. No, we are justified by faith alone. I addressed this some last week because a passage like this can, can seem to contradict what James says, especially James chapter 2, right? And really what James is saying is not an argument against the fact that faith alone saves us, but what he's saying is that true faith, saving faith, has certain characteristics. In other words, true faith, saving faith, is not just agreeing with certain facts, but it's coming into alignment in our lives with the will of God. And so the purpose of the book of James is really to describe the character that comes about in our lives along with saving faith, okay? Verse 31, chapter 3, do we then overthrow the law by faith? He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do we overthrow the law? It's a good question, right? Because if it's all a matter of faith in what Jesus did for us, then can't we just take the law of Moses and, like, we don't need that anymore, right? But Paul says, by no means, he says, if anything, we should uphold the law because the law shows us our great need for salvation by faith. The law lets us know we can never be good enough for God on our own. That's exactly what Paul did for the last few chapters. And he's going to demonstrate when we get into chapter four that the law anticipated the coming gospel of justification by faith apart from the deeds of the law. What that means is that the gospel actually establishes and fulfills the law's predictions. Think about Jesus. He said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When we look at the law, again, all of it is pointing to a Messiah that would make salvation possible. And it's not like the law was plan A and, and that didn't work out. And so God said, okay, I'm going to go with plan B, right? Understand this today. According to scripture, Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. This was always God's plan. As you read through the Old Testament, one of the favorite words of the Old Testament authors is the Hebrew word chesed, chesed, right? It speaks of God's steadfast love. It is throughout the Old Testament. You see, we have this wrong way of thinking that the God of the Old Testament is, is all harsh and, and, and judgment. He's, he's the judging God. And the God of the New Testament, he's the God of love and grace. But hear me today, it's the same God. It's the same God, and he does not change. You know, there are some liberal seminaries and theologians that reject the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. They reject the idea that God could pour out his wrath upon his son, really? They say, man, that's just too barbaric. Really? You believe that God would do that to his son? They, they think it's an idea that came from this ancient idea of, of appeasing angry gods, but I would suggest to you today that the plan of God is both holy and just, but it's also gracious and loving. And the only reason that these liberal theologians struggle with the cross is because they are judging God by man's standards. <laughs> Listen, if we go by man's standards and we try to set up a God that we think fits our standard, we would never come up with such a God. 
In fact, man could never imagine a God who's so good and so merciful that he would not only be just to, to judge sin, but he would also be the justifier, the one who takes the judgment upon himself. Even mankind today can't think of a God who expects you to be holy and at the same time loving towards others, right? And so many will choose one or the other. Oh, it's all about his holiness and there's, there's no love involved or it's all about his love and there's no holiness involved, right? Because to hold the two together, is, it, it's pretty demanding, right? And so many say, oh, we're, we're going to choose love and we're going to throw holiness out the door. Or we're going to choose holiness and, and, and we're, we're going to throw love out the door. And, and hear me today, if it were not for the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, I think it would be impossible to live with both grace and truth, right? When Jesus came, says this about Jesus, that his words were full of both grace and truth. And so, yes, God judges evil because his nature demands justice, but his nature is also one. You need to hear this today. It's one of love and mercy, steadfast love and mercy. And it's really at the cross of Jesus Christ where God's justice and his love meet. It's at the cross where we see his wrath upon sin, but we also see his grace and his mercy freely offered. And I want you to hear this today. Salvation is available today as a gift. It's freely given to all who would receive it through faith in the work of the cross. And the truth is, there's no other way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we all need the cross, amen? We all need the work of the cross. Would you stand with me as the worship team comes and we prepare to close? You know, through the years, mankind has come up with so many excuses to dismiss the message of the cross. But I want you to know today that the call still goes out. The call still goes out to those who are living in rebellion to God. The call still goes out to those who are self-seeking. The call still goes out to those who would deny Jesus. Yes, even today, the humble and yet powerful Jesus, the one who died so that you would live, he calls out and he says, come, come and follow me. Listen, if you've been tracking with us all the way through chapter one and chapter two, and now you're hearing this idea of Christ paying the penalty for your sin, you're hearing this idea about him becoming a substitute for you on the cross so that you could be made right with God. If you're hearing all this and you're still holding on to the idea that one day when you stand before Jesus in judgment, you're going to say, well, I'm good, right, Jesus? I went to church every Sunday. I'm good, right? Because certainly there are sinners. You saw them. They were way worse than me. If you're going to stand before Jesus one day and talk about all the rules that you've kept, I want to remind you today that will not do. No, the work of the cross is our only hope. Listen to these words from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Justification, right? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, the cross is our only hope. It's your only hope. It's, it's my only hope. Is, is that my sin is nailed to the cross. That everything that God's got on me, it's nailed to the cross. 
And when Jesus went there in my place and he received God's wrath, so on one hand, he took the penalty that I deserve. On the other hand, he imputed to me his righteousness. That righteousness comes to you and I simply by reaching out to him by faith, by confessing and acknowledging that, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm guilty. But I believe today that Jesus paid the price that I deserve. As we close today, you can make that declaration of faith and trust. Again, it's simply by admitting you're a sinner, believing what Jesus did for you on the cross, and confessing him as your Lord and Savior. And it's from that place, hear me today, it's from that place that the life of trust truly begins. And so with heads bowed around the room today, if you haven't already done so, if you haven't made that declaration of faith, Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Again, simply saying to the Lord, and you can do this right where you are right now, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, I believe that you paid the price for me in the cross, and I confess you as my Lord and Savior. And so when we place our faith in what he's done for us, then he leads us. Hear me today, this message is for all of us. It's for all of us, whether you've served the Lord for some time or whether today you're praying that prayer for the first time. I think it'd be good for all of us to stop and to meditate and to thank God for the righteousness that he's given to us. Heads bowed around the room. Just think about that righteousness. And think about the fact that it's come to you apart from the law. You've sinned. You've fallen short. But you're justified freely. We've received his grace as a gift. So all boasting goes out the window. Because Jesus is our propitiation today. Because Jesus took the heat. Because Jesus endured the wrath of God. I want you to take a moment and think on that before we close with a song. And I want you to thank him for that fact. If you've been trusting in your own righteousness, ask him to forgive you today. If you've been boasting about how good you are, ask him to forgive you today. If you've been trusting in your own good works, set those aside. Let's focus in. Let's trust in by faith through the work of Jesus on the cross, the fact that he makes us righteous. Amen.